Uh, we're on our journey uh, to Jerusalem with Jesus, so do turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. We're going to pick it up from verse 20. Um, just knock it on two, if you would, Hattie, and we'll come back to that other one. Uh, Jesus is now in Jerusalem uh, in Luke chapter 20, verse 20. It will come up behind me, I believe, but if you do have a Bible, tablet, or paper, do look at it because we'll be skipping around, looking at the context, what's it sitting amongst, and that's really helpful to, to see that with your own eyes, if you like. It says this, keeping a close watch on him, they, that is the religious leaders, sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. So Heavenly Father, we do ask that by your spirit, you will illuminate these words that you have preserved for our good to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, we want to understand and we want to do. We want to be doers of your words to help us connect with this strange, pithy little passage that you've seen fit to include in this account of Jesus. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Uh, tattoos are quite a fashionable thing at the moment. Over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, more and more people are having them. Interesting uh, kind of dynamic in our culture, I think. But I'm not going to scratch too far under the surface, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, but they are prone to some hazards. And it's very easy to make a spelling mistake in permanent blue ink that is immortalized. I don't know if you've seen any of these. Um, so, Hattie, you might be able to go back to that previous one. So, so this person on their arm said, uh, no regrets. Uh, well, they might not, but they might have some regrets, hey? Uh, this one uh, hasn't quite gone to that English class about double negatives. So, never don't give up. Uh, okay. And uh, this one down here is Ariana Grande. Have I pronounced it right? <laughs> I'm out of a comfort zone here. And uh, she tattooed in Japanese the name of one of her songs, Seven Rings. Does that ring a bell? Ah, no pun intended again. Uh, but, but instead, she got it wrong, it was pointed out, it actually says small barbecue grill. <laughs> and until she got it uh, addressed, shall we say. Oh, dear. Well, let's go back to our story. Uh, I'm keen to really unpack it. It's a funny little one, really. You do scratch your head and think, Lord, why is he there? Paying taxes to Caesar, what's that all about? Well, I just want to unpack it looking at four of the component parts of this account. We're going to look at uh, the spies, the trap, the coin, and Jesus. So let's look at the spies firstly. The spies were sent by these religious leaders who were the they, as I pointed out in verse 20. And a few things about them. Firstly, they had cruel intent. Being no doubt, they weren't trying to score points with Jesus. They wanted him dead. 
Okay? They weren't trying to win an argument. They wanted him killed, out of action completely. And this is one of the overarching storylines, actually, uh, as we get closer to Jesus' death. Uh, we've seen it. It's been interleaved in the passages we've been looking at. Jesus, in fact, predicted this very thing. If you want to flick back to Luke chapter 18, verse 31. He said, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the Gentiles, referring to the Roman authorities that occupied the land. And they will mock him and insult him. They will uh, arrest him and have him killed. Then on the third day, he will rise again. Uh, and the disciples are going, what? Don't get it. They didn't understand it at all. Uh, we might think, really? Well, I mean, what's not to get? <laughs> but I, I think it was so outside of what they were expecting, even with simple language like the ones that Jesus used there. They, they didn't follow it. So Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus, you could argue, was provoking it. Uh, as we've been looking at some of the parables, they were, they were pointing to the Pharisees. They were, they were niggling at uh, their message. And lo and behold, now we do know that it was the stated aim of these religious authorities to have Jesus killed. If you look back to uh, Luke chapter 19 and verse 47, um, Jesus was in the courts of the temple. He was um, uh, verse 47. He was teaching in the temple, and the religious leaders were trying to kill him, it says in verse 47. Yet they couldn't find a way to do it because the people were hanging on his every word. This wasn't just a trick question. They wanted him dead, and they wanted to find a way of doing it. Why, you might ask? Well, partly because I think they saw him as a threat. It was very difficult for them and Jesus to kind of marry up. The messages were so different. Uh, he was a threat, and many people were following Jesus. I think also he was an offense to them, he, as I've pointed out. Uh, the second thing to learn about the spies is they had a cunning plan. They were fake disciples. Good old Prince Harry's been caught out by this, hasn't he, recently, and other celebrities do over time, when journalists disguise themselves on the phone or in person uh, as somebody else, and they get some information, and it's all revealing, and it goes across our tabloids. It's not particularly kind. It's a cunning plan, and uh, the religious leaders have, have entered into that kind of world. They have sent some fake disciples, and they're looking for some evidence. They're looking for further evidence to clinch the case that could bring the death penalty uh, to Jesus. And thirdly, about, about them... They had a convincing disguise. I think their introduction when they came to Jesus was, was seemingly sincere. If you look at verse 21, they said this, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I think that was sincere. I don't think that would have looked or sounded odd. I think their, their question also would have sounded reasonable. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? We might think, really? A bit of an odd question. It's not the kind of question you get at an Alpha course. Uh, we might get something about suffering or, or gay marriage or, or the creation. But really, would we get a question about paying taxes to the government? Um, we don't really connect with that. But I think it wouldn't have stuck out. I think some of the genuine disciples may have felt, oh, I'm glad somebody asked that. Because I was thinking that. How do, we, how do we reconcile this message that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God has come, but is also to come? And so we thought that we would be in the kingdom of God, and 
and only in the kingdom of God. But what he seemed to be saying is we're in the kingdom of God, but we're also in this world. There's an overlap. How does that work? We weren't expecting that overlap. I think uh, it was a genuine challenge, and some people would have uh, approached it or concluded on it in different ways. I think some became quite combative. They thought, well, we, we need to rise up. There needs to be an uprising with, with violence, if there has to be. Blood may have to be spilt because the kingdom of God needs to take over and fill the earth, uh, and we might need to do everything towards that, uh, that revolution, if you like. There was a group called the Zealots. Even one of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot, was of that background. Uh, for others, then and now, we, they try and think, well, how does this work? Maybe, maybe we're meant to self-isolate as a Christian community, to use a current term. Maybe we're meant to cocoon ourselves. Maybe we're meant to go to the edges of the world where we're not bothering anybody else and they're not bothering us. And we can, we can set up a new society, which is completely godly. And people have done that over the years, over the generations, I guess, in different ways, possibly. Uh, monasteries that did a little bit of that. They preserved the word of God as well, but they were, they were pockets of other kingdoms in amongst uh, the earthly kingdom. I guess when the new worlds were discovered in the North Americas, in New Zealand, uh, hence the name, setting up Christchurch in New Zealand, they wanted to establish a, a community of godliness. Uh, the Amish and other European communities went out to the, to the west, uh, towards the west coast in the Americas to, to, to set up alternative uh, communities. So I think it's a real challenge to get our head around what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. In the kingdom of God, but also operating in this world before the kingdom of God does come fully and completely. So there you go, a bit about the spies, a bit about the trap. This question, I think it was an impossible dilemma that they'd crafted to catch Jesus out. There were dire consequences, however Jesus answered this. That was a life or death situation for him. Really? Paying taxes? Yes, I think it was. If he said no, it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar then they would have used that, I think, in evidence to have him convicted in the Roman courts by the Roman governor, by Pontius Pilate, who was uh, over that area of rebellion against the emperor and the empire, and therefore sentenced to death, death on a cross, crucifixion, their preferred means of doing so. If he said, yes, it's, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, as you'll see a little bit later, I think they would have used that as evidence to convict Jesus in a Jewish court, in the, amongst the Jewish religious authorities, of blasphemy against God. We'll see that in a minute. Now, they may have um, prescribed the death penalty for that, but they may not have been able to carry it out, but they may have got the Romans to do it. But otherwise, in the court of public opinion, Jesus could have been ruined in his reputation. So let's look at this coin. I've got a picture of one here as well. Uh, Jesus refers to this coin, this denarius, and he asks, what's the image and the inscription on it? On it. So what is the image and inscription on it? Have you got it there for me? All the PowerPoint's slow today, isn't it? There we've got um, uh, Tiberius Caesar, who's the emperor at the time, and a bit of Latin uh, around the edge on the front and the back. That's his head 
There he is, sitting enthroned. But it's interesting what uh, the inscription says, something along these lines, that Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, the great high priest on the other side, the great high priest. That I understand, I'm not a Latin expert, is, is the translation. Now, there's so much wrong with that. Firstly, apparently, Tiberius and Augustus weren't blood relatives, as was often the case. Uh, a Caesar chose, maybe even adopted somebody so that they could become heir apparent. Um, and they didn't get on particularly well either. But the claim here is that Augustus is divine. Augustus, the dead Caesar, is, is, is like God, is God. And Tiberius then is this great mediator between the divine and the people. I mean, that's blasphemous. That's blasphemous to us, blasphemous to the Jews and the Jewish authorities. And that's what they wanted to catch Jesus out with. So let's look at Jesus as our fourth component in this story, if you like. First thing just to say, like with so many of these accounts we've been looking at, Jesus models so beautifully what it is to live by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't he? It doesn't get spelled out, but you can just see the way he responds. is so spirit-led, gifted by the Holy Spirit supernaturally. And I think Jesus models, if you like, the receipt of two spiritual gifts right here. The first one is the gift of discernment. He just knew by the Spirit, in his Spirit. There's, some, there's something fishy here. I don't think it's because their disguise had slipped. The moustache had gone a bit wonky. I don't think it's because their, their introduction was a little bit too smarmy. Uh, no, no, I think it was convincing, but Jesus knew. By the Holy Spirit, no, no. Don't take this as red. something going on here. And I, I just feel, Lord, we need that. We need that possibly more than ever in, in our culture, in our day, at least in, my, in the lifetime I've known. Because there is a degree of hostility at times that is increasing towards the Christian message. It's not just quaint and old-fashioned anymore. It's seen as dangerous by some. And so there is a need for us to be discerning. And this is not about us being clever or or, or having some uh, human antennae. No, this is about relying on the Spirit. Oh, Lord, what's going on here? What's behind this? So I love that about Jesus. Secondly, I think he demonstrates the gift of wisdom by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is not because he's got an, an IQ in the 150s. Uh, it's not because he's, he, he knows the Bible so well. He, this is a gift of the Holy Spirit, available to all of us. However long we've been a believer, however many times we've read our Bibles, it's by the Holy Spirit, this wisdom to know how to respond, to know what words to use. And it's not to encourage you necessarily to go away and revise this response to this kind of question. I don't think that's what we're meant to be doing. We're not meant to be learning a script. We're meant to be learning the way of the Spirit. And he will be with us. The promise is that he will give us the words to say in the moment. And these are the words Jesus said, show me a denarius. How did he get out of this trap? He, He escaped a bullet here. His life was prolonged because of that response. Okay, yeah, not for terribly much longer. And lo and behold, he he was accused of blasphemy in the religious courts. And he was accused of advocating tax avoidance in the court of Pontius Pilate. It didn't stick. Pontius Pilate said, no, no, he's innocent. 
but yet he was still crucified because of the power play between the various parties because of this uh, the madness of the crowd had been stirred up we get some of that sometimes in our day don't we the madness of the crowd taking on a personality that was not there before and I think it's because it was God's will of course as well and it wasn't yet God's will for Jesus to be arrested he, he, God is in control of these precise details have we been reminded already this morning I do think though that however short this passage is uh, that that statement show me a denarius whose image and inscription is on it that was enough I don't think Jesus needed to necessarily say any more than that because what he was doing was he was getting them to act out something and by doing so condemning themselves Jesus I think he may have had a denarius on him I think he might have known what was inscribed and whose image was on it he knew the answer or if he didn't have one, one of his disciples would have had some money, I imagine, in a bag, paying their way as they go from the offerings and what they'd earn. So I think he would have, but no, he wanted them to get it out of their pocket. Show me a denarius. Because they were implicitly approving of this as currency. It's in my pocket. I use it every day, was the uh, implicit uh, conclusion. So that, that was it. You're using it this so-called evil currency, then your hypocrisy in asking this question has been revealed. But he does go on. Uh, we're going to look at what he says. He goes on in verse 25. Uh, when they say, yes, this is Caesar's, uh, he said, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And uh, just as we look at the application for this uh, passage, I'm going to touch a little bit on taxes because it's right there but not too much. I will mention giving financially. Uh, it's topical for us as well at the moment, but really there's, there's something bigger. There's a bigger principle at stake here, and I don't want us to miss that with those details. So I guess as, a, as an honest, sincere disciple, we may still be wondering, uh, well, well, well do, we, do we pay taxes to our government? Should we? Uh, and it may be worth very briefly just bringing some clarity to that, uh, not that you've necessarily asked it yourself very many times. But um, I think it's a genuine one, and maybe it has applications in other areas of life, you know, where we how do we engage with this world when we're not of it anymore? We don't belong here. We're strangers and aliens now. We've put our faith in Jesus Christ. So says the Bible many, many times. We, we, we thought we fitted in, but now there's something different about us. But we're still here. How do we work that out? How do we work that in the arena of our work and our employment? Which kind of companies or organizations can I work for? What kind of teams can I be on? If, if there's a project or a client or a customer that's come, uh, do, do I need to discern, is that okay for me to get involved in? I remember thinking about that when I was working for a company and I was asked to uh, be involved in a project in the gambling industry. What do I, what do? I do? We've, we've got to address. We've got to, we've got to think these things through. We've got to try and understand the overlap that we're in and, uh, and use our minds and our heads and our prayer life, to wrestle with some of these things. How, how, how do we direct our children in education? One that many kind of think about. How, do we, how much do they need to be in the world, or do we need to cocoon them? But, ah, what, but they're just small, genuine, real questions we have to think through. This whole area of sustainability in the environment, and all the, we've got to think through what's our response. We're, we're, we're part of this world, but we're not of this world. Uh, well, anyway, back to taxes. Well, 
Funny enough, Jesus did pay a tax earlier in Matthew 17, miraculously from the coin that was found in the mouth of a fish. But really, if he was advocating, I think he was here, uh, paying taxes even to the Roman Empire, then it's not really about whether or not we voted for the government, like the government, like their policies. It's just otherwise, because let's be honest, it's not as bad as the Roman Empire. Paul advocated the same to the church in Rome, in Rome 13, verse 7. He said, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, pay up the revenue. If you owe honor, then give honor. This is a theme that was exploded and applied to the churches as they started to develop. I imagine partly from what Jesus uttered right here. I'd like you to see uh, paying taxes of all varieties as an issue of faith. We've been reminded again already today of God's sovereignty over all things. He is sovereign over who's in charge of our nations. And that doesn't mean to say we're just completely passive. There's prayer to be had. We're going to pray for our authorities. But we need to see that God's in charge. And he uses and works through all the rulers of this world, however inept or corrupt we may think they are. He does. He's always done it. That's why we've got the Old Testament. We've seen it again and again and again. He does that. So it's it's an issue of faith in God's sovereignty. I think paying taxes is an issue of grace. Seeing God's grace, God's provision for people, for the common good. There needs to be some organization. And we might wish that the the tax laws, the benefit systems is is tweaked this way or that way to benefit us or other people. But really, it is a means of grace. Imperfect at times, but it does provide uh, some paternal, some maternal uh, resource for the common good. And I think we should see it as an issue of mission. And this relates to the coronavirus to an extent as well. We're, We're to be model citizens. We're to be the best citizens of this nation as we can be under God. And so, whether it's tax avoidance or tax evasion or aggressive tax evasion and all the other definitions, we should be above all that, above reproach in all of those areas. Because we need to provide no, nothing that will undermine the message of the gospel. Nothing. There should be nothing that would stick to us as God's people. So don't fiddle your tax returns. Don't over or underestimate your capital gains. Don't uh, skip your corporation tax if you own a business. Pay your income tax, your council tax, your car tax, your TV license, and your VAT. Not that you've got a choice. But let's do those things. But let's, let's, let's expand it. Let's be those model citizens where we can be uh, in our nation. Whether it's uh, instructions about... Uh, isolation, whether it's about speed limits. You know, it's, a, it's an issue of faith and grace and mission. Okay, that's enough about tax. Uh, there's something bigger at stake, and I really want to uh, emphasize this. Let's go back to verse 25. He says, Jesus, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. I think he's quite, dis- it's like the tone of it, I think, is He's welcome to it. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Just, just give it back. <laughs> give back to Caesar what Caesar's. But then this is the important point that he has. He can't resist the opportunity. And to God, what is God's? Give back to God what is God's. He, he again is using 
this moment to express what he's consistently been expressing as he's been approaching Jerusalem through the stories and accounts we've been looking at. If you want to be in God's kingdom, you need to completely surrender your life to Jesus as king. You need to totally surrender everything to him. The question to ask yourself is, what have I given up for follow, to follow Jesus? What have I given up to follow Jesus? And you, you're allowed some days to think it through, but I, I would suggest there's got to be something. If, if there's nothing, then I humbly suggest maybe, maybe look again at what it means to follow Jesus. Go back to that first base. What have you given up to follow Jesus? And what we do is we give up everything to follow Jesus. But as we grow in our discipleship, we may be saved, we put our faith in him, we find, oh, there's other things. Oh, thank you, Holy Spirit, you've just uh, illuminated to me that I need to give up, more consciously maybe before, in a different way than before, or afresh, because I see it a little bit differently now. Or you've touched some area of my life, I want to bring that to you again. We're constantly, as disciples, looking to say, Lord, what is it? What is it? What else? What more? What have I yet to give up for you? Why do I say this? Well, two things. I think the clue comes in these words, image and inscription. At least that's what the Holy Spirit has drawn my attention to. Because it was the image and inscription on the coin that Jesus referred to. And on that basis, that's what you gave back to Caesar. So what has the image of God on it? we should give it back to him. What carries the image of God in this world? Firstly, well, our human being carries the image of God. We know this. We look at creation often. Genesis 1.27, God said, having made everything else, and now let us make something in our image. And then he made them, male and female, in our image, said God. There's, 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 a, there's, a, there's an honor, there's, there's a, a sacredness, there's a dignity about every human life that doesn't exist for the plants or the animals or even the angels. We display every single one of us, however broken, however embryonic, however decrepit, however uh, uh, bro- hurting we are, however vulnerable, however dependent, there's, an, there's a... There's a there's a sacredness, there's an image of God in every human being. No wonder Psalm 139 says what it does. Then believers, for those of us who've put our faith in Jesus, who are following him, there's something else, so much even more glorious. Uh, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 29. I've got it here somewhere. It'll come up behind me, I'm sure. Uh, if it's not still a bit stuck. For those God foreknew, he also predestined what? to be conformed to the image of his son. Just in that simple phrase, simple sentence, God is saying, look, these are the bookends of your salvation story. If you've come to faith in Jesus, it was because God foreknew you and predestined you. And it will end because you will conform to the image of, God, of the son. You will conform to the image of Jesus. Wow, that's 
God's job on your, on your life. And it's going to happen if you've already put your faith in Jesus. You might think, oh, I think I've made some progress. No, no, he's made some progress. Uh, you might think, oh, oh, I've got so much more to go. Don't worry. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And he's going to do it on the last day when Jesus comes again in all his glory to usher in the, the kingdom in all its fullness and set up the new heavens and earth. And there you'll be fully displaying the image of Jesus in, you, in, in who you are. But let's work with him now. Let's get on board with it. This can be accelerated in this life because that's what we've been created for. It's what we've been foreknown for. It's what we've been predestined for. Yes, there are stages in the way, as it goes on in verse 28. I won't look at it now. But that's, that's the bookend. That's what God's doing in your life as soon as you've put your faith in him. And who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the image of God, it says in 2 Corinthians 4. He is the image of the invisible God, it says in Colossians 1. We've already looked at it this morning. Jesus is the image of God. So you're being conformed into the image of Jesus, who in turn is the image of God. That's your destiny. So why not give him your whole life again and again? You belong to him. He's, he's making you like him. Why not surrender all yet again to him? And what carries the inscription? God's inscription you know, when we put our faith in Jesus, God does some writing. He writes some things. And he writes in um, indelible ink. Firstly, he writes your name in the eternal book of life in the heavens. Revelation 3 verse 12. As soon as you put your faith in Jesus, commit to following him, your name in permanent marker, those in the book of life. It will never fade. It will never wash away. It will never get rubbed out. And then one day on the last day, when Jesus comes again in all his glory, he will read out those names, and your name will be on there. Naomi Ward. Jeremiah. Kevin Lee. But he doesn't stop there. He also, I believe, writes with invisible, indelible ink on us. You know when you uh, maybe go to a nightclub, I've done that for a while, or go to some event? <laughs> You're surprised by that, I can tell. <laughs> or, or you go to some you know, day out thing, a thought park or somewhere, and, and you, you want to go get your sandwiches in the car, yeah? or, or you need to pop outside to get, get uh, some fresh air, and they stamp you, don't they, with, some of, with that kind of uh, invisible ink. Uh, so that when you come back in, you, you waft your hand under a purple light, and there it is. Yeah, you can come in. Uh, and it's a bit like that with what Jesus does with us. These invisible tattoos uh, are on us. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3. Oh, this is verse 12. Previous one was verse 5. I'll read it out because it's so encouraging. I know, by the way, that this all came after what Jesus said. I know I'm skipping the order of things, but, you know, it's all in the Bible for us now. <laughs> 3.12, here we are. This is Jesus speaking about his people. I, halfway down, verse 12, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. That's where our security is. That's 
That's where our strength comes from. That's who we are. Jesus, we can't see it yet. I'm covered in tattoos. You can't see them. He's written his name, the name of God, all over me. He's, he's put these, these images of, of, of the kingdom of God, of the new Jerusalem, of, of the heaven, of the new earth. Oh, pictures of the, of the people of God, of the nation of God that I'm part of. I'm carrying on my skin, if you like, my passport to heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven, and so are you if you put your faith in Jesus. Wow. And it's going to show up. When he comes in all his glory, often the, the writers of the Bible, they, they just struggle to describe the light from the glory. It's going to be off the spectrum, not even ultraviolet. And when you go under it, it's going to show up. The name of the Father, the people of God, and Jesus' new name. He's got so many names. He's going to have a new name when he comes again, and it's going to be on you. It's already on you, and it will show up in his glory. Wow, I know this is pictorial language, but the truth is the truth is the truth. You're his if you put your faith in him. You belong to him. He owns you. So come on, why not? Submit everything. Why not? Why wouldn't we? We're his anyway. This is good for us. Give your whole life back to him. Give to God. Give back to, back to God, really, is that sentence. It's already his. Give it him back. Your life. And everything in it, uh, and we're to be, therefore, living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1, aren't we? And it's to affect every area of our lives, and I've not got time to unpack all of them, but yes, our time and our hopes and our dreams and our family and our relationships and our education and our jobs and our careers and our, our savings and our lifestyle and our hobbies and our pursuits and our reputation and our sexuality and everything else about us. Give it all up for Jesus. And then lastly, by way of specific application, I think it is appropriate just to talk about giving uh, money financially. I think there is a financial implication here. Uh, so much of what we've looked at actually has money, wealth, possessions as the backdrop, as the context, as the things that are referred to. And yes, they're often illustrative of a bigger principle, but we mustn't also forget to apply it, this bigger principle, to the area of our pockets and our bank balances and our investments or whatever we have. Two of the parables we've looked at over the last few weeks are all in the context of money. We've had two people we've looked at, briefly Zacchaeus, uh, and also this rich young ruler, both for whom money was an issue. We, we must apply the bigger principle to the area of our finances. And it's interesting this has come up just at the moment when there's economic challenge in the world. And we're looking at buying a building with not much, anything, in our building fund. I think God's testing us here. I think this is an opportunity for faith, grace, to abound. You know, I think there's a little implication here that Jesus is drawing out, if you want to look for it, that it's possible to rob earthly kingdoms. Therefore, I think the implication is it's possible to rob God by not giving him as he's asked us to. One of the last warnings of the Old Testament prophet, prophets 400 years earlier in Malachi 3 verse 10. Don't rob God. How can we rob God? By not bringing the full tithes and offering into the storehouse. But those words are still, were still ringing for 400 years until Jesus arrived. 
But I want to remind you briefly of the Macedonian church, which we read about in 2 Corinthians 8. I think they just model something that's really helpful for us in this moment. And also, I do think it connects with what, I've just, what we've been looking at uh, as the account that Jesus, uh, we have of Jesus here. Uh, the Macedonian church uh, are commended because they are so generous, so generous, and in a situation where they're, they're suffering extreme poverty themselves, in a situation where they're, they're, uh, they're under severe trial. But they're also a people full of joy, and they have a zeal to give to a special offering. But I don't want us to look at the behavior necessarily. I want us to look at the motivation. What was behind it? And Paul draws it out in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5. He says this, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, go and gather up an offering. There's an order here. We're to give ourselves first to the Lord. Have you done that? That's the message of this morning. Give back to God what is God's. It's your life and everything in it. Have you done that? Are you firstly giving yourselves to the Lord? It's an order. It's important. And then to us also, Paul refers to, have you given yourself out of your surrender to the Lord, to the church, to God's people, and the vision of God's people that you're part of? And the family of churches that they are in turn part of and the vision that they have, that God has given. Have you given yourself to the church, to God's church? It flows out of your devotion to Jesus. And, and then, then, offerings. I mean, you can give anyway, please. But, but really, for our discipleship, we've got to get that order right. And I think as we do so, I think there will be a swell of joy and a rising of faith and Another example of gracious generosity. Amen. Amen. Well done. Let's stand.